0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Northern Rivers Food and Southern Cross University present Business Bites. This podcast series discusses, evaluates and explores all the factors that contribute to making a successful business. I'm Angela Caternes, host of Business Bites, and in this episode, our final episode for Season 1, we're taking a moment to pause and reflect on the wisdom and insights from the forward-thinking academics and leading industry experts we've heard from so far. Think of it as a refresher course for those who've followed along for the season, or perhaps a primer for those newer to the podcast. We'll be hearing some clips from across the season and discussing the compelling issues and ideas that have come up along the way. Joining me for the discussion is a familiar voice, Associate Professor David Noble. David is a lecturer and researcher with Southern Cross University, who we spoke with in the Business Health Checks episode. Hello and welcome again, David. Thanks, Angela. Nice to be back. And also joining us today is a new guest, Georgina Inwood. She's Vice Chair of Northern Rivers Food and a Business Advisor and Farmer here in the region. But Georgina, you are no stranger to Business Bites because you've been working with me behind the scenes Beavering away throughout the season. Hello, welcome. Oh, thanks, Angela. It's really nice to be here again, and nice
1: to actually get a chance to uh, share a few thoughts rather than furiously buttoning <laughs> my mouth up the
0: entire time. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, uh, your role and wh- and you know what the idea behind Business Bites is? Yeah,
1: yeah. Look, absolutely. It's been a, a big project for Northern Rivers Food to embark on, and we were really pleased at the opportunity to do this with Southern Cross University. Um, It was one of those things that came about because we were both looking for ways to help businesses in the region. And that's very much what it's been about, talking about ways that businesses can be more resilient. And I know that we don't like to use that word, and I'm going to try and avoid using pivot or resilient the, the whole time that we're talking today. But for us, it was obviously focused on food and beverage businesses in the region, but really I think a lot of the insights that came up across the season are relevant to businesses of any type, um, and that was really what we were hoping to do. It doesn't matter what size business you are, what, um, what age, what level of maturity, um, but there's topics that are relevant to all of those businesses, and for us to be able to tap into the experience of Southern Cross's experts, as well as the, the wisdom of our business members uh, and share that in a, in a podcast series or in a format that was really um, bite-sized chunks for anyone to listen to was really powerful. Uh, and it's been uh, it's been amazing doing it. We're obviously uh, wrapping up season one now, hoping that we'll be able to, to roll on to uh, season seasons two. two and three uh, very, <laughs> very soon. So it's been, yeah, it's been a great adventure. And I know for myself as a small business owner, Uh, listening along all through the way. There's been so many light bulb moments um, and I think that it's a really nice opportunity today to revisit some of those. And just, you know, pull pull on those, uh, pull on those threads a little bit more.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to the very beginning. And our first episode was all about how to manage unexpected challenges, an issue for any business, but obviously so relevant in this region, which has had to cope with fires, floods, drought, and a worldwide pandemic. David, one of your specialties is risk management. So uh, this is a topic right in your wheelhouse.
2: Yeah, it is a bit. Um, It's it's been interesting to see how various people have responded in a variety of ways. I think as I've looked at the businesses around town, and particularly I'm talking Lismore, it seems to me there's sort of three responses that have happened. Um, Some businesses have looked at the situation, gone, right, we're going to get in there, we're going to clean the place out, we're going to get back up and running as soon as we can. Now, it helped that the government threw in some money for flood recovery and so forth, and a lot of those people have used that, which has been fantastic. And and so many of these businesses were up and running in five or six weeks. I, I was astounded at how quickly they got back up and running. I think there's another group of uh, business owners, and and I may be wrong here, Georgina, but I think they're sitting back slightly. They've cleaned up their premises but they haven't quite got back into business yet. And, and that might be because of cash flow. That might be because they're still unsure about what's going to happen. Is the government going to make a decision and close them down and buy them out or, or whatever? Mm-hmm. And so there's a, that group there. And then there's a third group that have gone, nah, we're putting our hands up in the air. We're gone. We're out of here. And, and for those people, in some ways, I think it's been a bit of an opportunity they might have been thinking about their business and its viability and so forth, but this, what is effectively what we call a black swan event, has basically catalysed that and made them decide to do it now. and uh, And that's the, the sort of three major responses that I've seen around town over this.
1: Does that Does that resonate with you, Georgina? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, I think I think you're right, and I'd probably add a, a fourth category who which would be that those who did just get back in and get back up and running because they probably felt like they had no choice financially. And what I'm starting to hear a little of now is that those businesses now, you know, what are we, nine months post-flood, two years post-COVID – now is when they're starting to actually think through the future and and what their business model or, or op, method of op, op, operation might be in the future, and I know there's a few um, particularly producers that i I know of who are now starting to make changes, and it's only because they're starting to come up for air a little bit now
0: it's yeah. taken it's taken that long yeah david uh, I, I'm imagining that there are fundamentals um, that are important so that a business owner is in the best position to manage unexpected challenges like the flood? Uh,
2: absolutely. And, and you know what? Uh, cash is one of those key, f- key factors. And, and businesses that were barely scraping by didn't have the backing, if you like, the financial backing to be able to continue on. I think there's a lot of people in that situation. But at the same time, if we take a step back, most risk matrix matrices um, work on two axes one is likelihood of an event and one is consequences and of course it doesn't matter whether an, an event is likely or not if the consequence is catastrophic then you know to put it in ambul- ambulance officers terms um, it's incompatible with life uh, as a business and uh, and so forth so I think if we look at it along those lines What we've seen happen in the past 12 months this year, I mean, following on from COVID, has been this amazing situation that no one could have prepared it for. We look at the science behind and the engineering that we've all been basing all of our decisions upon, and that's just been thrown out the window. And so we'd like to be able to say, we can prepare for every eventuality. The reality is that we can't. And so it's about... What, when we can't do that, it, it actually comes back to personal resilience as much as anything else. You know, our businesses can keep on going sometimes and our businesses can limp along, but do we have the internal resilience to be able to continue that? So to answer your question, I think the two factors are financial situation mm-hmm. and personal resilience for any business, small business owner.
0: Mm-hmm. And so um, maybe you could just share with us your perspective on how the uh, university, on how SCU has always managed challenge. That's
2: an interesting question and the interesting part of that question is the word always. Always. I thought you'd say that. <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is I, don't, I think this year the university has responded in a way that I haven't seen it respond in the past. And, and that is without knee-jerk, it is without catastrophising it, it has been to open its arms, and and I have to pay tribute to our uh, Vice-Chancellor, Tyrone Carlin, for this. It has opened our arms to the community in a way that I have never seen before.
0: Has that made you feel proud?
2: Uh, it is. Uh, it, it, it has, yes. I, I feel quite proud of the way our university has responded. I spent quite a bit of time up here at the very initial stages when we had the refuge centre in the basketball stadium and, and I saw people in dire, desperate need being looked after and taken care of and the facilities of the university instead of just being for the university, truly being for the community mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I think that has made me prouder of this university.
0: Dean Gould, the university's chief marketing officer, was our first guest in the managing challenge episode. And one of the things he focused on was how two factors were critical in the university's handling of both COVID and the floods. Let's have a listen to what he had to say.
3: Well, I think you have to have your core... your core audience you you, we call them students somebody else might call them customers somebody else might call them clients partners whatever they are but they're they're the people that you exist for and so they're the ones that you have to prioritize and put put them at the front of all your decision making and i think the university did that over and over again very very well so we were we were able to say okay as uh, as i pointed out before the the student became the um, the, the main focus of our decision-making. So, you have to have that main focal point on what, what do I want to be um, important in this decision? And as always your, your key cohort. The second thing is consistency. You don't want to chop and change the values with which you approach those decisions. And, you know, um, being um, safety first, uh, being a good partner, and looking at the longevity of the university, they were the values that we approached to a lot of the decision-making uh, for the university. So I think um, looking at your key cohort and then uh, being consistent with the values that you apply to those um, those tough decisions, I think they're the two really uh, critical factors.
0: And so um, what, do you, what do you take from that? What insight does that give you? Well, I, I actually
1: think that David actually summed it up nicely and it, it really does correlate very well with what dean was talking about which is that there's there's almost the the, the structural side of being a, a successful business which you know goes to your financial thing and cash flow and all of those you know basic things that that any business or organization like the university needs to nail but then there's something that's a bit more intrinsic or or esoteric which is knowing what you value what's really important to you and that's the thing that actually drives you in a moment of crisis where there's possibly not time to stop and plan and and think things through, but it's actually what enables you to be adaptive uh, and to respond to a situation quickly and and effectively. And that's really clear through listening to a lot of the, the different things that Dean talked about and also Ben Roach, who we had in one of the later episodes, that the values of the university really did drive how they responded to the floods. And I think that that's something that any business owner can really look to and, and m- mimic, use that same approach. So they have to understand that what is it that's actually driving them to be in business uh, and if they have that at their core, then it becomes very easy to, to translate that into business decision and, and how, you, how you go about thinking about decisions that you have to make for your business.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I find it really interesting to use the term business values as though there's values that are applicable to business and then there's values applicable elsewhere.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. I,
2: I just think they're values. And, and being a good citizen underlies everything that we should do. Yeah. And, and that's what came to the fore, I think, um, back in the end of February, where you know our university leadership could have said, well, no, all of these assets... Uh, for the university to use Um, but in actual fact they they took a completely different view opened up the whole place to pretty much anyone and created a whole heap of chaos in the process by doing that and I know our staff were impacted by that Mm -hmm. and there was perhaps a couple of staff who sort of got a bit annoyed about that Um, but generally speaking the values that the university leadership base their decisions on seem to actually um, permeate most of our staff as well. And I think if you can create um, an environment in your business, whether it's a university or it's a small business, where those sort of things are at play, then you're doing a really good job.
4: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think... A lot of the work that I do uh, outside of my own farm is working with small businesses, small growers, small producers to help them think about their farm as a business, Um, which sounds a bit funny, but a lot of farmers, they don't necessarily think on that that basis. And what I try and encourage them all to do is actually think about their business planning, so their farm planning um, in context, so in context of their lifestyle, their family, Um, What's important to them? Because when you are a smaller, small business, it is impossible to view that the two are separate. They are so interconnected. And I think everyone's personal resilience, and yeah, I've I've still got to come up with a different word for that, has been so um, worn away over the last two or three years that, um, yeah, it's a a really difficult thing, but I think it's really important. So, David, I think you're right. You can't necessarily um, treat business value as a separate thing to personal value because particularly for a small business, they are
0: in fact one and the same. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Correct.
0: One of the things that struck me in that episode and others too was how many of the businesses we heard from that had very thorough planning and documentation. Let's hear from Katrina Patton from Piwackets about their flood planning.
4: We were incredibly well prepared if possible. We had a very thorough flood plan and being in North Lismore, we knew we would flood one day. Um, So we had an extensive flood plan to evacuate. Um, we started many days early. In fact we we started months earlier in that often we would get deliveries to Jenna's house instead of to our kitchen knowing that it would be too heavy to move later. So it kind of informed the entire design of our of our business. We had our cool room three blocks away from our kitchen, which was a nightmare logistically, but we did that because we were like we can't build a cool room here because it's a flood
0: prone area. So it was the flood plan was like embedded in our Business all the way along. So, so they had a specific plan embedded in their much broader business plan, didn't they? They knew what they had to do or wanted to do in advance. They didn't just uh, have to suddenly face an emergency and fly by the seat of their pants. I guess um, that sort of preparedness would be common to both, you know, small businesses and major institutions.
2: Absolutely, and the university has always been, or as long as I can remember. Um, a refuge centre and a, a a place where people could escape to to be in safety um, so we've had our plans around that of course um, but I, I totally get uh, what um, Katrina. Katrina was saying sorry uh, about um, being prepared and, and planning it ahead of time and so forth my stepson had one of the biggest cafes in town and we had the flood plan and we knew exactly what to do you pull the doors off and you raise up the pictures and you do all of that sort of thing and in 2017 it worked perfectly in 2022 it was almost as though we hadn't done anything yeah. so um so those plans are really important but as I get back I get back to what I said a little earlier today and that is that sometimes these black swan events come out of the out of the woodwork and, um, and no matter what planning we do, they're going to completely override us. And, and then it comes down to, as human beings, how do, we, how do we react to those situations?
1: David, I've got to ask, what is a black swan event?
2: So a black swan event, uh, it's, it's, in the, it's in the literature and it's been around for about 20 or 30 years now. And I can't remember the, the original author who talked about it but it's this idea that there's something comes out of the woodwork either good or bad which is so fundamentally game changing that you could never have never have imagined it happening and um and certainly I was going to say the pandemic was one of those and yet it wasn't because we knew that there's going to be a pandemic one day we just didn't know when but this idea that something is so profound it it fundamentally changes how we actually operate and and think and it changes the paradigm in which we work
1: yeah I, th- I think my observation would be that the the black swan concept is an interesting one i'm going to take that and i'm going to use that in in lots of uh, conversations <laughs> now but it was it was interesting watching through the pandemic in particular that there were there were businesses who looked at it and were completely confronted and, and really fearful of it. But then there were other businesses that seemed to be able to adapt and mm. actually used that as a, um, an opportunity to go in a different direction and actually come out stronger at the other end. And it's been interesting looking at a regional level here that there were some businesses that I would have expected would be fine um, and they would come through a pandemic okay And then there were other businesses that I would have expected who wouldn't cope, um, but actually did manage to come through. And I think it says something about the robustness of their, um, their planning and their thinking in the first place, but it also says a lot about their ability to look at an event like that and see it from all kinds of different perspectives. So not just as something that is confronting and challenging and difficult, but also as something that offers opportunity because mm. in any situation, you know, and obviously Northern Rivers Food is about food and beverage, regardless of a pandemic, people need to eat. And it was, it was an interesting process and I'm sure there'll be much written about it in, in years to come as to how businesses, food businesses in particular, did respond to that.
2: That would be a lovely, interesting little research project. <laughs> 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 if
0: only
1: I knew an institution that was That's interested right. in research. just might have to get onto that. Yeah.
0: We had two episodes in the season that were focused on numbers, the business health checks episode and the business finances episode. David, you featured in one of these and you really summed it up when you said, numbers don't lie. Well,
2: they don't. Uh, they're fundamental to any business, and whether it's small or large. I want to pick up on something you said a moment ago about small farmers and that sort of thing Mm. and how they see themselves. Mm. I've got a brother-in-law who has quite a large farm by Northern River standards. Mm -hmm. um, And he used to be bank manager. And so I made the mistake one day of saying to him, well, you're a farmer. And he broke in and went, no, I'm not. I'm a farm manager. Mm. And that's how he sees himself. Now, maybe because of his banking background, I don't know. But for him, it's all about the numbers. And he's looking at yield, he's looking at futures, he's looking at the, the, the exchanges, the, the cattle mm-hmm. exchanges and all that sort of thing, constantly looking at those things. And so even in a small business like that, which is, you know, a very small SME by mm-hmm. all accounts, and it's a micro business effectively he's looking at the numbers constantly. It's no different to the university. I know that, you know, our financial people and, and our – it's interesting that we have a, a VC who is both an accountant and a lawyer. And, um, and so he has this forensic way of looking at the numbers. And so it really doesn't matter whether you're a tiny little business, a micro business, or a large business like the university is
1: yeah I think you're right. um I do have one question for you though is your brother and all a member of northern Rivers Food because if not we need to make that happen okay well we'll take that up later. I, I th- can I take that on notice <laughs> no, you certainly can I think you're right and it's 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 interesting uh, like uh, part of my business I obviously work with um and I focus on small scale producers and growers um and some of them like they're they're just the most extraordinary characters, but it's often surprising like some of them you'll chat to and we and I I made the mistake once of asking one of them who was a produce grower um, how he tracked his crops so how he was knowing when to plant when you know when he was going to have something to harvest and I said so do you do you use Excel or what do you what do you do and he just laughed at me and he I mean the quality of his his produce is extraordinary. He has forgotten more about vegetables than I will ever know, and he does it all in his head. Mm. Mm. And I just think about how I mean and how much more successful or perhaps easier his life could be if he was able to use some um, slightly more um, documented or sophisticated processes to actually understand financials, cropping, all of those kind of things, which is not to say that every business needs to try and strive to be massive and, you know, a multi-million dollar entity because you do want to, and I want everybody to, to balance that with their own well-being and, and lifestyle and family choices. But I think to, to your point, David, the numbers, you're right, they don't lie, they tell a story and – if you don't actually track them and monitor them, then it's very difficult to understand what that story is. So
0: tell us, you know, what, what, what are the insights that, you know, that you, can, um, that you can gain from analysing the numbers?
1: Well, I think probably David is is better place to answer that. Um, I mean, I, as a small business owner myself, I know that maths is not my strong suit. Uh, so I, I choose to work very closely with an accountant um, who helps me to understand that. Um, so rather than trying to do it all myself, um, I actually do use e- external support for that. And I know that that was something that Jennifer Harrison, who was one of the other guests on that episode, she talked about that as well. But there's some, some core things that I know I need to be able to understand. Um, and, you know, that's, that's something that any business owner should, should really know. And it's, you know, it's cash flow, it's profit and loss, it's some of those basics. Um, but I know that that can be uh, daunting for some people.
2: Yeah, but if I go back to your example of, of the person who does everything in their head, often they will have an intuitive understanding of a couple of things. One is trends, what's happening, mm. how long has this been going on, which direction is it going in, is it seasonal, is it cyclical or have we got something that we need to take, uh, take notice of. The other one is the... I call them inflection points, but those points that either present danger or opportunity mm. within uh, within a business. So, in particular, you need to know where the danger lies. If your you know, um, prof- if, if your profit is declining and your costs are going up, then you need to be able to intuitively know that there's going to be a point at some point where. I'm not going to be making any money and I'm going to make, I need mm. to make some changes. So, so those sort of things I think are crucial for people to keep track of. Now, you can keep track of that intuitively in your friend's head. Yeah. Uh, some people are good at that and natural, uh, but uh, I think you can do it better uh, and more consistently mm. with tools like Excel or good um, uh, accounting programs like Myob or QuickBooks or something like that.
0: Mm. Georgina, you mentioned um, Jennifer Harrison, one of our guests, senior lecturer at Southern Cross University. She flagged the need for businesses to plan for inflation and how it can impact on profitability, efficiency, liquidity. David, can you elaborate a bit on this and, and, and how I guess this is becoming even more pressing day by day?
2: Absolutely. And, and we've just come out of a historic period of low inflation. We're, sorry, low interest rates. So w- w- money has been cheap, easy to get. Now things are changing. And I was talking to someone yesterday whose repayments on a particular loan have gone from about $680 a week to nearly $900 a week. Mm-hmm. And so, so that change is massive. Now, you might not call that inflation, but it has an inflationary mm-hmm. effect within the organisation. So it's, it's really important to understand the impact of inflation and, and where rising costs often move ahead of your ability to re- recover those. And that's where the big issue falls, that if you're not recovering the costs of inflationary prices, then you're going to go out the back door. And, and one of the things that we've seen in recent... L- although it hasn't happened in the last month or so, but for a while there, for about six or eight months, there was a spate of news announcements about builders going broke. Mm. Quite large, well-respected, long-serving b- builders going broke. Now, I haven't looked at every one of those cases, but I would, I'd almost bet 100 bucks that, um, in many cases... It was the cost of steel and materials going up, not being built into the price that the customer was paying. Mm-hmm. And they got to the point where their margins were so skinny, they went the wrong way.
0: Mm. Financial literacy really is a, a fundamental skill, isn't it? It's, it's, it's necessary for every business owner and integral to business planning, would you say?
2: Absolutely. And <clears throat> I think I said last time I was here that there are so many courses TAFE runs course. There's registered training organisations that run courses. All sorts of organisations run these courses that are totally accessible, many of them now, online. And this is going to sound a bit harsh, but I don't think there's any excuse for a small business owner not to become financially literate in this day and age.
0: Let's hear from Mark Awad at Winding Road Distillery. With a good strategy, uh, you're you're essentially being proactive about where you're going, not reactive. Um,
5: The analogy I like to use is that without a strategy in place, you're like that um, single-use plastic bag blowing through a car park, uh, just going where the wind and uh, and, and currents take you. Uh, With a good plan in place, you're being proactive, you know where you're going, and uh, you ideally know how you're going to get there. And that involves uh, knowing what your uh, what your financial expenditure will uh, be like, particularly with regards to major
0: expenses like capital expenditure. Let's change focus now and talk about our episode on provenance and storytelling. This was an episode that was really focused on food and beverage businesses. Let's have a listen to one of the key moments from that episode. This is Professor Adele Wessel, a food historian at Southern Cross University.
4: I think I think it's important for people to be able to tell the story of their farms. So places that um, feature the the actual farm itself, the animals, people are interested in animal welfare and the care of the animals too, um, I think is really valuable and something that people will often ask about. Um, they also want to know what to do Um, with the food as well. So if you're a goat farmer, for example, people want to know, um, you know, how to use it beyond making a curry. Mm -hmm. Um, So finding those things out from producers is really important. I remember Nimbin Valley Dairy told me that it used to be quite challenging when you were dealing with consumers, they would just think about cheese in terms of platters. <laughs> so it was just something that you kind of laid out on a tray. But actually, talking to people, they they started producing some kind of cooking videos as well. So talking to people about how to use cheese beyond <laughs> beyond a cold putting platter. it on a platter, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you can really appreciate it.
1: I think that's it's interesting that that whole. St- idea of connecting with your customers about the ingredients um, is actually something that came up in in quite a few of the episodes. And I think Adele summed it up really nicely there. Um, And it's something that we talk about a lot at Northern Rivers Food is talking about provenance. So it's kind of that that magical culmination of ingredients, of process, of location, of of people um, that really become integral to to the the nature of something. Um, And we want people to tell that story. We want people to be talking about the provenance of Northern Rivers food, not only because it's a great story, but also for individual businesses, it helps to be able to build trust in your product. Uh, And the more you can connect with people about things like, well, okay, this is how the cheese was made, and this is some cool and interesting and different ways that you can use it, um, that's a really powerful process.
0: Mm. I think especially in the food and beverage industry, you sort of do need to educate people about your product, don't you? Absolutely. And
2: I think it's easier to talk about a story than just another product. And I think that's where the difference comes in, where it's not just another piece of cheese. Mm. It's actually a piece of cheese with a story behind it, with a a whole region behind it. Um, I was talking to someone the other day (coughs) who talked about having a, a, a Scotch whisky where they had brought uh, water from the Antarctic or ice from the Antarctic, melted it, and made the Scotch whisky out of that. Now, that's a Tasmanian thing, but you, you can imagine there's a real story about that. There's something special about that. Mm. And if we can find those points of difference in our products – I think it actually helps us to sell the whole package. Yeah,
1: it does. And, and sell is the actual pertinent word there because for for me, storytelling is multifaceted. In part, it's about that building of trust, but it's also to to bring it back to your favourite thing, numbers. Um, it's actually about getting people to understand price points because if you can explain all of the inputs and all of the, the processes and the, the, the painstaking... Um, labour that goes into making an artisan cheese, and and I don't want to just focus on cheese here, although Paul and Kerry's cheese is exceptional, it helps to actually make people understand why a a block of random cheese at the supermarket is significantly cheaper than the cheese that you're going to buy at a farmer's market. The quality is part of it, um, but it's also the the care and the process that goes into it. Uh, And I know that... um, That's something that businesses really need to think through. It's part of their pricing strategy, but it's also part of their storytelling.
2: Indeed. I've never stood in a supermarket delicatessen area and gone, ooh, ah, look at that. <laughs> but I've been in plenty of places that sell cheeses and meats and all of the, the small goods and that sort of thing and just drooled over, you know, what what's before me. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that I think, is a difference. And you talked about the price point. And, uh, and that's where you can actually generate a greater margin for your product mm. if you actually can... Tell that story and develop it well.
1: Mm, Absolutely. And it actually, to link back to your earlier point about inflation, I actually think it's it's important in that context as well because invariably businesses are going to get to the point where the inflationary uh, impacts and pressures on them are going to require them to lift prices. So if they've been transparent with customers and been telling the story of their production all the way along, it becomes a lot easier for them to be able to adjust prices and not lose their customers.
2: Absolutely. They've got a sound rationale for it and they've got um, often a loyal customer Mm. base there.
0: Another theme that emerged strongly in this episode and carried throughout the series was the respect for Indigenous culture and interest in native foods. Rebecca Barnes from Playing With Fire really set up this conversation.
4: It's it's very important um, because, first of all, not a lot of our native foods are used we have over six thousand native food plants in Australia. Is that right, we've commercialised twenty odd of them. So there's a lot of unknowns out there. Um, there's a lot more to be done. Um, it's also it's part of our the oldest living culture on the planet, and um, that's a really important story to to be told and to continue telling.
0: Yeah, the native food industry has really come of age, don't you think, David? And is there a scope for, for expansion in the future? Oh, absolutely. And I think those numbers
2: were just extraordinary, mm. where yeah. uh, thousands of foods, and 21 was it? Mm, 20, 20, 20, That have, yeah. mm, that have been uh, commercialised. And, and I almost feel like the idea of innovation around this is, is sort of, it's weird, isn't it? Because we're talking about the oldest yeah. living culture. They've been using these foods forever, uh, effectively. And, uh, and now we're talking about, you know, introducing them to the market, which is innovative. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think the future holds for this industry? I, I think it's I think it's massive, and I, I think it's it will take education. We need to be educated that many of these foods they might be different, but they're certainly no less in in terms of flavour or quality than what we what we are used to, and and it's it's almost like a and indigenising of our taste buds, I think, mm. you know, sort of moving us away from that European type uh, food towards something which is far more natural and plentiful in this country.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for the, the power of chefs, well-known chefs, celebrity mm. chefs, um, to, to be able to drive interest in ingredients. And I know Rebecca talked about that on the episode, that, you know, as soon as you know, Mindy Woods would use an ingredient uh, in an episode of MasterChef, then all of a sudden demand for that ingredient would just skyrocket. And whilst it's easy to be a little cynical about that, I think that's actually really important because it's getting people curious about ingredients that they don't perhaps know anything about, and it's helping to create a market for something that there should have been a market for all along. But what's interesting is to look back, and I know Adele did it in in that episode as well, to actually look back historically. Um, So after white people did come to this region and and to plenty of others, I'm sure, they did use the native ingredients and somehow that fell out of fashion and it's just starting to come back now. And I think for for us as an organisation, for Northern Rivers Food, there's a real role that we hope to be able to play to support the native food industry and to support our own members to, to enter into that space in a way that is respectful Um, but that also helps to to really um, give more um, heft or momentum to to the engagement in Indigenous culture and uh, Native foods.
0: And might we uh, pursue this topic a little further in our next exciting series,
1: Georgina? I, I think that is definitely on the cards. Excellent.
0: We had two episodes that worked together to address issues universally relevant to any business, recruitment and building culture. Both are hot topics at the moment and there was some interesting crossover between the two. Um, What were some of your takeaways from those episodes, Georgina?
1: I think the universality of the recruitment challenge, um, that it really is significant uh, here in the region. Um, and that's across all kinds of roles, so skilled roles, unskilled roles, at, at all sort of levels of an organisation, um, and that there's some, some real um, issues around training and around access to, um, to actual suitable employees. Um, one of the things I think we didn't actually delve into so much in, in either of those episodes was the, almost the elephant in the room, and that's housing. Um, it is a real issue here and in other regional areas, um, and I think we we sort of stayed away from that as a topic in the podcast, obviously because it's a, it's a very political one. Um, but the reality is that housing, affordable housing, um, is a genuine issue in that is causing an impediment to recruit recruiting staff in the region. I don't have an answer for that. It's it's not something that Northern Rivers Food has an answer for. We don't we don't dabble in politics. But I certainly hope that those who are in positions of or power uh, and authority can knock their heads together and come up with something to address
0: this. Mm. David, do you see um, a, a, a changing of the way people are viewing their working lives? I think increasingly they want to work less. They want to work from home, if possible. Um, you know, they talk about the great resignation and then there are, you know, the quiet resignation and and, and tree changes. Um, are you seeing this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think People are looking for flexibility uh, and self-determination in a lot of situations. And so what COVID taught us is that you don't actually have to be in a geographically specific place. You can be pretty much anywhere in the world. And during COVID, I... I actually proved this by taking off in my van and holding meetings from the front seat of my van on using 4G. <laughs> and uh, people used to call it my spaceship because I could see it in the background. Um, and, and I think a lot of people are, are looking for that sort of flexibility. And I was talking to somebody who uh, was, was saying, oh, look, I'm not going to be able to get holidays in January, but I'm still going to go camping. You know what? I can do, it. I can do meetings from the campsite. And so, you know, this sort of flexibility, mm. I think, is, is increasing. And so there's – you might have thought that that sort of attitude would have been amongst our younger people coming into the workforce. But old farts like me, I think, you know, <laughs> suffer from the same thing, that we, we want that sort of um, – that flexibility.
0: Yes, well, having had a taste of it, I think, um, p- people want it to continue.
2: Uh, I agree. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. So that's going to be important in the in the recruitment story. Mm. Um, but the housing issue, uh, I think, is is a real issue for our region mm. and for most country regions. Mm. I was I was watching a show the other day where there was a farm that had um, a, a beef farm and they had built their own abattoir, but they had also built about yeah. thirty. Uh, houses or or dongers, if you like, for yeah. for mm. their staff. No, they were better than dongers. So they they're actually places where a family could live, and and specifically because of that mm. that that problem, and uh, it's not going to go away soon. I think because the housing stockers, particularly in Northern Rivers, has actually declined. Mm. It's reduced in number, and uh, and we're going to continue to face it.
0: Mm. The issue of generational shift came up in a few episodes. Let's hear first from Dr Julia Caldercott from Southern Cross and then from Pam Brook, author, regen farmer and food manufacturer, speaking in the mega trends episode.
1: Young people, Gen Gen Zs and millennials, see career differently to maybe the Gen Xs or the baby boomers. In
0: what way? So now
1: we're seeing a lot more of the young people aspiring to have a boundaryless career, so spanning a boundary, whether that's across organisations or across hierarchical levels or even industry sectors. So they don't have those same expectations to have the one job for many, many years or even to stay in that same industry. So they, that sort of decides how they choose different positions and how they want to fulfil their career path.
0: Many years ago when businesses started, you had an idea and you went straight in, you know, all guns blazing. Now there's a real need for businesses, if they're going to be leaner, greener and more resilient, is they really have to understand their business basics. They really, they can't ignore the business fundamentals. They need to know their cash flows. They need to know their profits. They need to know every in and out of their business. But they also need to share that with their employees, so that the employees help support and take on that responsibility with the with the employer, and then you collectively build a business that is going to be more innovative and and um, more resilient and and uh, and be lean and green. And so, David, do you agree with that? Do you think employees' expectations have changed somewhat?
2: Oh, absolutely, and uh, I think people expect to have a voice in their organisation. Um, perhaps not at the lower levels of the organisation, but certainly anyone in any sort of supervis- supervisory or managerial role, I think, would expect to uh, to know what's going on. Shall we say? Um, my daughter has just joined a company in Melbourne, and um, it's a it's a B Corp, and there's a new You've heard of them, Georgina? Mm -hmm, There's a whole new movement out there of B Corps. And these are uh, organisations that are run on a very different model, and that is total transparency. And so all the organisation knows how much everybody's getting paid. Oh, wow. They know what the profits are. They know what the costs are. They know what the situation is. And instead of a CEO which dispenses orders through the organisation – the CEO might put up an idea and get feedback mm-hmm. from the rest of the staff on it and only if there is sufficient uh, sort of energy to move in that direction do they take that up. And And I think we can learn from those sort of organisations, whether we are a small organisation or a large organisation. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be, you know, a, a big corporation that goes down that track, but I think it's really important to, to consider... I don't know. I, I sort of see it as um, just doing the right thing or being courteous about letting people know what's going on. There's nothing worse for an employee to suddenly discover that a product line's been trashed because it
0: wasn't making money or whatever. Mm. Or just that somebody who they've been working side by side with for years is being paid twice as much as they are. Yeah, mm. or about to be let go. Mm. You know. So
2: I think this openness it's a dangerous thing for a lot of people and a lot of people are very nervous about it. But I think it's a really important thing.
1: Yeah, it's it's probably terrifying to people who have grown up in the, the old dichotomy, the old way of, of thinking. But look at us, like humanity is capable of such change. It was only three years ago, the idea of, you know, 95% of the workforce working remotely would have just been, people would have rolled their eyes and thought you were talking science fiction. And yet yeah. that was required of us as a, society as a culture and we adapt it and we made it through okay. I think that the reality for a lot of the, the kind of that cultural shift in how we as business owners engage with employer employees um, is, is a same kind of thinking shift in a lot of ways. We are capable of it. We just need to actually trust in each other and Take the take the approach of of yeah those businesses who are leading the way and you're right there are there are B Corp certified businesses in this region um, and they're not necessarily overly large um, but even if you don't go down that kind of a certification process the principles you can Correct. apply without having to having to do that and I think businesses are going to have to do that whether they want to or not because what we're seeing and this is what um, Julia was talking about is that the, the generations coming through they're going to demand it. So
0: you're going to have to adapt or you just won't have any staff left. Speaking of change, one of our episodes dipped a toe in the climate change waters. We looked at the drive by the red meat industry to become carbon neutral by 2030 and tried to see a way for local growers and producers to embrace this. Uh, Lucas van Zwieten, I think it was, who blew us away with the work he's been involved in around carbon storage and biochar and I pasture think, pasture yeah. production. Well, and hydrogen tractors, wasn't it as well?
1: He was extraordinary, and actually, um, I, I'm glad you, you you spoke about him particularly because I think that was one of the themes that I saw across the the whole episode. And, and David, you can um, blush on behalf of the organisation here, but. I think what blew me away was the the depth of talent and just extraordinary people that there are in Southern Cross University. Um, the things that this university is involved in, um, in various research um, or collaborations or partnerships, is quite extraordinary. And the likes of Lucas, who um, was such a took such a deep dive into biochar and and all of the things around that, that I don't. Pretend to uh, to necessarily understand, but he was he was so deep into it, and it's so relevant to members of Northern Rivers Food because anybody who has to grow any kind of food, whether that's uh, you know livestock or or otherwise, it all comes down to what's in the soil, and so for for us as an organisation to be able to tap into the likes of of Lucas and and the other things that the university is involved in it's quite extraordinary it's a real a real uh, resource for this region
2: yeah uh, one of the things i really like about what the university is doing is that they're working at both a coursework level and a research level and so the coursework level is is a, the example of that is a regenerative agriculture yeah. course which has i think blown a lot of people away by its popularity. Mm. And so that's we've got four or 500 farmers who are who are doing that now. And and just by chance I met someone at a launch of something in Canberra whose husband is doing it. Okay. And when I got in contact with him and started talking to him, he's actually now working with farmers in India using the same principles. Mm. And He's sort of working with 81 people who are each working with 1,000 people. Mm. And and the reach of that is is quite extraordinary. So that's fantastic. At the research level, there's a whole heap of different projects going on. And one of my colleagues, Owen uh, Hogan, is leading a little research project uh, in the red meat industry. And uh, and what they're looking at, and he's working with I think about 27 uh, meat producers around Australia... And they're looking, trying to get plastic out of the system Mm. and particularly the single use plastic. And, you know, I didn't realise it, but um, when they move a piece of meat from one one room to another, they basically wrap it in plastic. They take it into the other room and they take that plastic off and chuck it in the bin. And so these plastics are really, really hard Mm. to recycle. And so he and his colleagues are working with these meat producers to try to find a way of getting that out of the system and moving towards a more circular process where they can reuse the things that they've been using in the plant.
0: Mm. Well, one of the issues our other guests spoke about in that episode was the inextricable role that consumers play in driving producers to take positive steps to, well, to reduce waste and regenerate the land. Let's have a listen to Paul Wilson from Nimbin Valley Dairy.
5: There's a little bit of a um, story out there that farmers are environmental vandals and I don't buy into that. Basically, they respond to price, price signals they receive from the marketplace. And if people want to pay a dollar a less the milk, then they're going to get cheap milk that damages the environment. But if they're happy to pay a bit more, then that money can be used to to manage the farm and the the environment a bit better. So mm. I think um, farmers want to do whatever's Good for their animals and their land.
0: I imagine there'd be no argument from either of you on that. No, no, completely. I think I think actually Paul
1: summed that up really nicely and it, it comes back to the point I was making a little while ago about price points and communicating with customers. Um, but but Paul has really hit the nail on the head that most of the the farmers that I've ever come across in my working life and and I grew up on a farm, um, most of them actually do care very deeply about the land, their livestock, and and what it is that they grow. They are often hamstrung financially by trying to do things in a different way. So being able to actually help help them do better is actually the role of consumers. That if we are actually prepared to, um, or if we want producers to do things differently, we have to be prepared to pay a different price, Um, which of course links into that whole concept of storytelling that we've touched on already. Uh, But I think Paul is right. We we get what we pay for, so we have to pay something different if we want something different um, in terms of the way that farmers are acting as environmental stewards.
0: The only episode we haven't looked back on yet was the episode on collaborations. The idea of this one was to help businesses think about how they can work with partners or do more or work more effectively effectively with someone else. Ben Roche from the university talked about how collaborations can help achieve scale and influence. But there are also something to go into with a clear vision. I think it's
5: really about clarity of intent and then clarity of expectation to start with. So that is, what do I mean by that? So in clarity of intent is really thinking about the why. So why do you need to, to collaborate? What are you trying to solve for in um, partnering or working with another group of people. And so having that real clarity as a business as to what do we need to do? Are we just wanting to build understanding with some of our suppliers around a new range of products that we may well have? Or are we trying to look at new areas of activity, new products, new solutions in a context that we might not have as much confidence as we want to have in order to invest? And so that might be an example where you do deeply collaborate and come up with some sort of shared solution to that challenge. So I think, first of all, it's about understanding what are you trying to solve for? And then after that, I think it's really being clear on what do you expect out of the process? Do you expect to arrive at a really clear solution for your business strategy? Or are you just really wanting to walk away with a couple of good ideas and a little bit of inspiration? So somewhere along that, that entire spectrum lies a, a really good business intent. And then coming from that, I think it's very important then to think, after you have that clarity, to think about the values that you hold as a business and uh, how you want to work and whom do you want to work with others who share those same values? And because the values often will become the principles that guide how you work together. And so it is important at the very early stages of collaboration to just reflect on your values and the ways in which you expect others to work with you along that journey of collaboration.
0: Do you agree, David? Have you, um, have you experienced a collaboration here at the university?
5: I collaborate all the
2: time. Uh, with my colleagues on research projects. But what you might not know, Angela, is that my PhD was on collaboration. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I do have a deep air, interest in this area. And Ben's absolutely right. At the very beginning of collaborations, uh, we need to set up the boundaries within that collaboration. Mm. Why are we doing it? And in fact, we need to ask ourselves if we really need to do it. Because collaborations actually take energy and they take the uh, flexibility to adapt our systems so that others can use those systems and the way we do things. So um, I, I think collaboration is fantastic for achieving far more than we can do as a single organisation. But it takes trust. It takes rep- recipro- reciprocity. Mm-hmm. I think that's a term. Um, it takes a willingness to take risks. Uh, it takes commitment over time and fundamentally it takes relationship you cannot collaborate with people you hate Mm. um, or people you'd completely distrust so it's really important to have those factors present in whatever collaboration we undertake Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah that was that was very much what um, the other two guests on that episode uh, spoke about so that was rebecca zentfeld and chris manfield from memory and they said very similar things that a lot of it came down to having that, that personal connection with, with a potential collaborator um, and knowing that you were on the same wavelength as them in a lot of ways. Um, but what struck me as also being important was that they had some quite clear structures and, and um, I wouldn't say processes, but they had some plans in place at the outset that enabled them to be in a position to collaborate. Um, and I think that um, that's really important, which comes back to that whole point of it is important as a business owner to plan. You, you can't just fly by the seat of your pants all the time. You, you have to be preparing for things to go well, for things to go wrong, uh, and to think through all of the, the um, potentialities that are, fall in between that. The other thing that I think is important in terms of collaborations is that for a region, um, collaboration is a good way for smaller businesses to leverage their size, to actually achieve more without necessarily having to grow. So it's a really powerful tool for businesses, but it's not one that you you should just jump into with, um, with your eyes closed. And I think that I was really, really pleased in this episode and in a lot of others that the business um, guests that we had speak on the podcast were really open and honest about some of the things that had gone wrong along the way. So it wasn't just about everybody coming on and, and, you know, singing their own praises. There was some really, um, some real brutal honesty about things that hadn't gone well. Uh, And sometimes collaborations can fall into that. They may not necessarily turn out the way that you want them to, um, which is a point that Ben made, is that you also need to have an end point. You need to know when when to stop a collaboration. Yeah.
0: So many amazing stories, so many fabulous personalities, so much left to explore in Season 2. And so that's it. We discussed, evaluated and explored all the conversations we've had this season about the factors that contribute to making a successful business. Before we bid you a fond farewell, are there any final thoughts or pearls of business wisdom to share, David?
2: Remember the numbers. (laughs)
1: They don't lie.
2: They don't lie.
0: (laughs) Georgina? Tell your story tell your story to everybody. Fantastic. This episode of Business Bites was the final one in our first season, and we hope we've left you inspired and better equipped to make your business thrive. Thank you to Associate Professor David Noble from Southern Cross University. David, thank you. Thank you. And to Georgina Inwood from Northern Rivers Food for joining us. Thanks, Angela. The Business Bites podcast series is a collaboration between Southern Cross University and Northern Rivers Food. Southern Cross now offers the new Bachelor of Business and Enterprise at its Lismore campus, and for the March 2023 intake, the university is offering a scholarship worth $5,000 to every student who enrolls. This new degree can help the brightest commercial minds to stay in our region. Perhaps that's you, someone in your business, or someone you know. Find out more at scu.edu.au. Northern Rivers Food is the region's not-for-profit, member-based food organisation. Established by people from the paddock to the plate... Northern Rivers Food supports and connects people in the industry, developing skills and opportunities, and celebrates the unique food of our region at every turn. To get involved, visit northernriversfood.org. Business Bites is proudly funded by the New South Wales Government, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode. I'm Angela Coterns. Thanks for listening.